you can live out your MasterChef dreams. When you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that. Welcome to Pod Save America. I'm John Favreau. I'm John Lovett. I'm Tommy Vitor. On today's show, the Biden administration waffles on its pledge to take in more refugees. Three Republicans try to start a white nationalist caucus in the House of Representatives. And Crooked Media political director Shaniqua McClendon joins us to talk about our brand new filibuster whip count, where you can see exactly where your Democratic senator stands on eliminating the rule that's standing in the way of just about everything good in the world. But first, in case you missed it, check out Pod Save the People, where co-host Kaya Henderson sat down with Oscar-nominated director Shaka King to talk about Judas and the Black Messiah. Fantastic interview. Fantastic show, as always. Dre and the gang have been doing some great work lately covering a lot of really important news. Go check it out. All right, let's get to the news. Uh, One of the many awful legacies of Trump's presidency was his decision to turn away thousands of refugees trying to escape war and persecution in some of the most desperate places in the world. Up until 2016, the United States took in about 80,000 refugees each year. That was true under both Democratic and Republican presidents. By Trump's last year in office, however, the cap was down to 15,000, one five, and he essentially banned refugees from majority Muslim and African countries. On Friday, Joe Biden signed an order that ended that ban, but left in place the historically low cap of 15,000 refugees, saying it, quote, remains justified by humanitarian concerns and is otherwise in the national interest. Dozens of Democratic members of Congress immediately criticized the decision, including leaders like Nancy Pelosi and Dick Durbin. And just hours later, the White House said that they would increase the cap by May 15th, though they said it's unlikely that they'd hit the target of 62,500 refugees that they promised Congress back in February. Tommy, what do you think is going on here? And what are the consequences of the administration dragging its feet on this issue? So, I mean, for the issue itself, I think I would sort of divide it into human consequences for these individuals and then political consequences around the the refugees debate. So a a little more backstory, like back in February, President Biden delivered a speech at the State Department where he said that the Biden administration would set the refugee cap for next fiscal year at 125,000. And that about a week later, the State Department sent a report to Congress saying it would admit 62,500 refugees by September 30th of this year, so the end of this fiscal year. So that would get him above the historical average. It's very good. But then the White House just sort of mysteriously didn't sign the presidential determination that actually formalizes the decision and makes it happen. And I remember Ben and I talked about this on Pod Save the World last week because we were sort of confused by it. And we, I don't know, chalked it up to like the staffing not being in place. We just didn't really know. So the human consequence of that, though, is you have tens of thousands of refugees who have been fully vetted and they're just sitting in limbo. Many times they're in like very dangerous refugee camps, but you have flights getting canceled. You have like pregnant moms who can no longer travel because they missed their window uh, where they could get on a plane. Uh, And then the consequence in general was the U.S. was on pace to let in fewer refugees than any president in history, less than Trump. So that's just devastating for the human beings here who are like trying to get out of someplace where they they had to escape. Um, The political consequences, I think, are that the decision 
felt pretty heartless to a lot of progressives and to activist groups. And then it kicked up this conversation about refugee admissions that is probably unhelpful. Because you can remember when Trump would demagogue this, he made them all sound like, you know, terrorists were sneaking in through this program when really they're the most heavily vetted of anyone admitted into the U.S. And I just think the Biden folks could have avoided this whole dust up if they just signed this presidential determination back in February since they'd already owned the higher number. So it, it was a very confounding uh, issue. I, I, I couldn't figure out what the hell happened on Friday. Love it. Could you figure it out? I feel like I read every story about this. <laughs> and, you know, I, I I was trying to give the Biden administration the benefit of the doubt here. You know, on one hand, they said, well, it's taken some extra time to figure this out and to bring these refugees in because the Trump administration decimated the program. So you can sort of see that. Uh, they said that the Office of Refugee Resettlement has been under particular strain because it's also the office that deals with uh, the unaccompanied migrant children that are coming in, uh, that are coming over the border to the south. Of course, people pointed out those are two separate like funding buckets, two separate staff that deal with that, even though they are all under the same the same office. So I couldn't really figure out what the holdup was since they ultimately have said now, okay, we're going to we're going to try to hit that 125,000 number by next fiscal year. Yeah, it is strange. I, I was having the same challenge. I think there's I think there's like a political question, a communications question and the policy question. What I didn't understand on the policy front is there really are practical challenges that were created by the Trump administration that seem to be a big part of this. So they lowered the cap to 15,000. Uh, according to the Times, Citizenship and Immigration Services was uh, had reduced funding for even fewer officers than the 350 that were there in 2017, but there were only 136 uh, by the end of last year, 105 offices where refugees could settle uh, were closed by April of 2019. The Trump administration closed uh, field offices all over the world. Uh, a lot of private organizations due to lack of funding had to close their resettlement offices. Uh, so, like, I do think part of this and, and both, uh, you know, Jen Psaki has said this, Jake Sullivan has said, have said this, that they have to rebuild the resettlement program. That's now. Is that an excuse? Is that real? I think it's probably both and probably leans more towards having a real uh, logistical challenge of standing this thing back up quickly. Then you go to, to Tommy's point about sort of the confusing communications. And what I don't understand is they were going to sign this thing in February and then ratify the 15,000 cap was the goal to kind of under promise and over deliver, which has kind of been a political philosophy of how they do things where they caught off guard by their reaction to the delay. I'm really not sure. Um, yeah. And then also there are political considerations that I think, look, they're ultimately going to increase dramatically the number of refugees admitted. That doesn't remove the the moral, uh, um, that doesn't change how, that doesn't change what Tommy points out is the real hardship this causes for people stuck waiting right now in desperate circumstance. Um, now, if the issue is the politics of it, if they are going to raise the cap, they're going to pay for that politics at some point. So is the issue that, oh, this is just an acute moment. We're having both of these stories at once, like make, makes it something that'll be more lasting. I really I don't totally know. I don't totally understand it. Yeah, I want to get into the politics of it because, you know, CNN and The Washington Post both have sources on background saying that the original order stemmed in part from fear that it would fuel the political attacks uh, on Biden's border and immigration policies. And then uh, fucking, you know. C plus Santa Monica fascist Stephen Miller popped up on Twitter uh, and said that the announcement reflects Team Biden's awareness that what's happening at the border will cause, quote, record midterm losses 
Tommy, how valid do you think the political concerns are here? Yeah, Stephen Miller. Stephen Miller would blame any problem on immigrants if he could. So I don't give a shit what he says. I mean, yeah, I don't want to come off as like the righteous, pure policy guy here who's saying do the right thing because it is incumbent on every White House to make the best policy decision, but then also execute on those decisions with the best political strategy so that you can actually get them done. And administrations get themselves in trouble, I think, when they view things as purely policy decisions and they don't think through the political considerations or like the hoops you have to jump through to actually execute. Like a a good example for us was Obama's attempt to close uh, the prison at Guantanamo Bay. Prison became a recruiting tool for terrorists. It was immoral. It was expensive. Republicans wanted it closed. It felt like a no-brainer. But then you get to the how and the challenges of where you have to resettle people and where you do the prosecutions and how you prosecute terrorists or suspected terrorists. And lo and behold, we fucked up the politics so badly that Congress swept in and made it impossible to close uh, on a bipartisan basis. So all that's just to say, I think the Biden team is right to think about potential political attacks around immigration, around the border, around refugees. And they're absolutely right to predict that the Republican Party will continue to demagogue these issues. You know, like Trump, I think during the campaign said, Biden will turn Minnesota into a refugee camp, right? Like that was how racist and and terrible he was on these issues. I'm sure he was directing that towards Ilhan Omar. Um, But I think the, the back and forth last week was the worst of both worlds because now the left and the right are the mad and there's renewed focus on this problem that just I don't think was really part of the conversation. So I think politically, if they had just signed this presidential determination in February, it would have been part of a flurry of news. Like Ted Cruz and the gang are going to keep visiting the border. Fox News will find a new caravan just in time for the midterms. You can't stop bad faith attacks. But I, I, just don't, I don't know that this would have been a part of it. I just I don't quite get how they're linked. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. The question is, time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and make it a priority. You know, you know, you know. Have you been able to squeeze that special thing into your schedule, John? Yeah, that's. I think it's thanks to therapy. Therapy can help you find what matters to you, so you can do more of it, Mm -hmm. more time for you. I. uh... You know, because we've been doing what a weekday, mm-hmm. I actually put that in my therapy spot. You know, I, I replaced therapy with doing an extra podcast. Mm. It was a huge mistake. So uh, what do you spend time doing at therapy now? Well, now I brought therapy back. I added okay, therapy good, back good. to another time because uh, it turns out talking. That's going to make the jokes better. <laughs> well, it's really going to make things better for the team. <laughs> If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash PSA today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash PSA. I think the big question on immigration for the Biden administration, that, and it seems like they're wrestling with this, is how do you pursue policies that you believe are right, but may not be as politically popular as some other policies, right? So the White House wants to focus its attention almost exclusively on the pandemic and the economy, but they're clearly doing a lot of things on immigration. They're dealing with the situation at the border. They're dealing with um, increasing the cap on refugees. And like we said, just so people know the polling on this, like Morning Consult did a poll in January about all um, of 28 of Biden's executive actions that he had announced and that he was going to do. Um, the only executive action that was underwater was 
the uh, action to allow 125,000 refugees in. Only 39% of voters supported that. 48% of voters opposed it. Five of the seven lowest polling executive actions were all around immigration. Now, to the Biden administration's credit, they are moving forward on all those immigration actions anyway. But it does seem like what they believe is, okay, we're going to talk most about the stuff that's popular, like the American Rescue Plan, like what they're doing on the pandemic, and we'll do the other stuff and not talk about it as much, like what's going on on the border. Uh, what I think, though, is like in a vacuum, that might be fine, but Republicans love it, are clearly going to make immigration an issue nonstop between now and the midterms and beyond. So it seems like you have to be proactive about this kind of stuff and tell a story that's going to you know, sort of win people to your side on this. Yeah, it's, I will say, like, I, I think that's, of course, right. But at the same time, like the Biden administration, like even on their immigration policy, like they haven't been skittish, like they've been willing to kind of embrace the the kind of progressive uh, proposals without worrying so much about bad faith attacks from the right. Yeah, no, they they are, they get an A on, on embracing the proposals and the policy. And look, it could be a couple different things. They are dealing with a pandemic right now. We're still dealing with an economy that's hurting President wants to go out every single day and talk about the top issues on people's mind, which are the pandemic and the economy. But I do worry that meanwhile, in Foxland, on the right, among Republicans, they're going to have a drumbeat every single day on the border, on refugees, on immigration, or on all of their xenophobic bullshit to try to force that into the national spotlight and make the next election about that more than anything. And I wonder, Tommy, at some point, the Biden administration has to hit back on that and make the case that... There is nothing for us to be afraid of in taking refugees. There's nothing for us to be afraid of in, uh, you know, taking care of unaccompanied migrant children who come to our country. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, look, I just don't get it. Like he he did the public messaging part in February where he said that next year's fiscal cap would be one hundred twenty five thousand. And then they they walked it back for some reason. So uh, on the on the refugee piece of this, it, it's it was confused, and I think the the rapid change uh, sort of reflects the fact that internally they realized they'd screwed this up and they wanted just to get it right. Yeah, and hopefully now that, that they've clarified it, that we're on the path to fixing this issue, but everyone should keep an eye out. Everyone should keep holding them accountable, making sure they actually do this, make sure the refugee program starts up again, and, um, and they hit those numbers that they promised. Um, one thing we know for sure is that regardless of whether Biden and the Democrats focus on immigration, Republicans certainly will. On Friday, uh, Punchbowl News published a seven-page proposal for something called an America First Caucus, which states that, quote, America is a nation with a border and a culture strengthened by common respect for uniquely Anglo-Saxon political tradition. It goes on to say that immigration is putting the, quote, unique identity of America at risk and calls for limiting legal immigration, quote, to those who have demonstrated respect for this nation's culture and rule of law. This Anglo-Saxon caucus was reportedly the brainchild of Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene. And both representatives Matt Gates and Louis Gohmert tweeted that they were proud to join Green in the caucus. Uh, but after immediate blowback from both Democrats and even Republicans like Liz Cheney and even Kevin McCarthy, Green's office tried to distance the congresswoman from the document and finally told reporters she is, quote, not launching anything. Uh, love it. How big of a deal is it that a few of the craziest right-wing nutjobs in Congress tried to launch an Anglo-Saxon caucus in the House. Should we feel better that it failed after criticism from senior Republicans or what? No, no, I don't feel better. I have never felt better. I wonder what it's like to feel better. But the, uh, uh, so what happened? What happened was they launched something that they thought would be non-controversial 
in their own party. They thought this was just going to be like embracing Trump, which has become non-controversial inside of the party. Uh, uh, and this document, e- even if you remove the words Anglo-Saxon is in the spirit of the, what Trump has said and done, and it is, uh, you know, fascism with American characteristics. Uh, and I think the reason you saw Marjorie Taylor Greene, but also Gates, Gohmert, uh, people like Paul Gosar, uh, act like this was something great that they were just going to do and not worry about is they would have been fine in the way in which our politics currently works if they were Anglo-Saxon hadn't been in there. If they had just made a few more pieces of the racism subtext as a rather than text, it would have become uh, kind of acceptable. And Kevin McCarthy would not have felt the need to do something that obviously to take a great deal of courage, which is issue a powerful subtweet. Uh, so like my lesson from this is uh, the only mistake they made politically in this climate is they included the words Anglo-Saxon and were a little too explicit about the fact that they just don't want brown and black people to be Americans. I will say that there, there was there has been a big change. And, and in fairness, right, it was it started with the Trump administration. But there has been a, a, a change in how certain Republicans talk about immigration since Trump became president, whereas they've all felt comfortable being against illegal immigration and railing against illegal immigration. But during the Trump administration, partly because of Stephen Miller, partly because Trump himself, you started seeing Republicans talk about curbing legal immigration. And in this document, aside from the Anglo-Saxon thing, they want to limit legal immigration to those who have demonstrated respect for this nation's culture and rule of law. That Mm. is an entirely different level of xenophobia than we have heard from mainstream Republicans in the past, certainly at least most of the party before Trump. And I think that is a change. Well, I don't know. Look, I think the Republican Party is like constantly ebbing and flowing in terms of how openly nativist and racist and anti-Semitic it wants to be, not nationally necessarily, but David Duke got 38 percent of the vote in a 1991 Louisiana governor's race. That's horrifying, right? Pat Buchanan ran for president on a hard line anti-immigrant platform. I think he called for a, a, a full pause in immigration for five years or something five years, that yeah. outrageous and out there, right? So yes, these are uh, three uh, particularly enormous dum-dums, right? Like Matt Geitz, or Gates, whatever the fuck you say his name, jumped on this because I'm sure he was <laughs> excited to talk about literally anything else but his like potential DOJ investigations, right? But I, I do think we got to keep an eye on this stuff. And I'm glad that McCarthy and Cheney and some others came out against it. But I think we should view this Anglo-Saxon caucus, even if it's dead on arrival, as a data point about the broader trajectory of the Republican Party and how, you know, emboldened these forces feel. And I think the answer is in the post-Trump era is getting worse, not better. Much worse. No, much worse. I mean, Tommy, a few episodes ago, your um, under the radar story was about Tucker Carlson promoting the uh, great replacement theory, which suggests that Democrats are trying to take power by replacing white voters with non-white immigrants. Uh, A few days after Carlson did that, the Republican National Committee sent out a fundraising email with the subject line, quote, do you watch Tucker Carlson? He's absolutely right. So (laughs) there's this debate about you know, whether it's better to ignore crazies like Green and Tucker or whether we should draw attention to the fact that elected Republicans and conservative media figures are using language that's no different than white nationalist groups. Uh, Love it. What do you think? I think it's really hard. I think it's a really hard challenge. Uh, it, It is noticeable when there is this kind of 
news cycle around Tucker Carlson. You know, he embraces white nationalism on his show. It then becomes a firestorm on Twitter and in the mainstream press. He then enjoys it and responds to it and it builds and he gains more attention and sucks more and more out of the political oxygen out of the room. That said, uh, we have to talk about it. We have to talk about the fact that um, you know, unalloyed white nationalism has a very big foothold in the Republican Party. It is the mainstream now of the Republican Party. Um, you know, I know this is something Tommy's been struggling with too. Like, how do you, how do you address the threat that these kinds of figures pose without elevating them, not just in the consciousness of people who want to stop them, but in the consciousness of people who love it? I don't right. know. It's a really big problem. This is how we ended up with Trump. This is how we could end up with Tucker Carlson on a debate stage uh, with a bunch of Republicans who can't figure out how to stop him in a couple of years. Like, I think social media is what makes this complicated, right? Because if this was the 1930s and you caught some American politician reading aloud from Mein Kampf, right? You wouldn't go photocopy those pages and then hand them out without context, right? That, that's insane. But that's what happens on Twitter and Facebook every day. Lots of well-meaning people clip and share long clips from Tucker Carlson about the great replacement theory because they're outraged and they assume everyone else is outraged too, but you inadvertently end up spreading his message, juicing the Twitter algorithm uh, in a way that his, his views get seen or he gets more followers. And then Tucker doubles down and he says to his listeners, talking about this is how we own the libs, right? And it becomes folded into that part of the message. And so what happens is over time, once fringe political speech becomes normalized and, you know, racist, anti-Semitic fringe ideas become more commonplace and they get more traction. So like that's the ebb and flow. And the, the alt-right people, the far right, they know this, right? Like a lot of them, again, were just toiling away on fringe websites that no one ever saw until they figured out that if you said something offensive on Twitter, tons of, of well-meaning liberals would share what you did because they were mad about it. And it's a very deliberate strategy and we need to be smarter about it and counter that by calling them out for what they're saying and why they're saying it. We have to talk about their motives, all the things they want to distract us from and not talk about, and not just assume that when you share Tucker talking about the great replacement theory, that everyone is going to find that morally repugnant because nationalism and nativism are a part of the fabric of America, unfortunately. And we have to tell a better story, not just share his story, because that can lure people in. It's, it's very enticing to a lot of like angry people. I think I think that's a very good rule and way to handle it is just don't share without context and explanation. And and like you said, it just you cannot assume that everyone thinks like you do and are, are someone is automatically going to find what Tucker says repulsive and horrible. Like you have to teach people how it's being heard by especially white nationalist groups. Right. Nick Nick Fuentes, who is a white nationalist Holocaust denier. Um, he responded to Carlson's segment that Monday night about the replacement theory by tweeting, this week, Tucker red-pilled 4 million people, and there is nothing liberals can do about it. So I do think that like it, you can't ignore it. Right? You can't just let Tucker be saying all this stuff, and I talk, but you have to... You, you have to tell people why it's so dangerous. Um, but look, there's, I mean, we can ignore it all we want. Like in the Republican primary in 2024 and in Republican primaries in 2022, like whatever Kevin McCarthy wants to do, whatever Liz Cheney wants to do, whatever well-meaning Republican wants to do, there are going to be lanes for pure white nationalist garbage talking points um, from candidates 
And those candidates could do very well in the 2022 primaries. They could do very well in the 2024 presidential primary. Like this is here to stay in the Republican Party. This is the same Republican Party that was, you know, the establishment was confidently telling people that Donald Trump could never win the nomination. Right. Well, then he did. And then he won the presidency. So from now on, when people say shit like this, like we got to stay on top of it. Yeah. The other the other thing I would just add is you it's when Tucker says Democrats don't care about you. They don't want to help you. They've given up on policies that are popular or that make life better. So they're trying to import non-citizens to make your vote count for less. Obviously, there's a big component of that, that it we have to draw attention to the parts that are purely racist. But there is another piece of this, which is we have to prove him wrong on the merits of what Democrats do. We have to pass legislation that people see in their lives. And we have to demonstrate that, like, this is false across the board, not just in terms of the racist element, but in the terms of uh, politics not working for people. We have to prove that our democracy can work. We have to prove that we can, uh, in the next 500 and some odd days, uh, show demonstrable change uh, that kind of can attack at the margins. I don't think I think there's a lot of people who are unreachable, but at the margins um, that they can see that Democratic policymaking uh, has been effective. You can start your day off right. When you find a professional on Angie to get your plumbing right first. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that. All right. Congress is in session this week and the gap between the productivity in the House and the Senate is becoming even wider. On Thursday... The House is set to vote on making Washington, D.C. the 51st state, which will be one of over 40 bills passed by House Democrats in just this session of Congress. Others include the Equality Act, which would prohibit discrimination based on sex, sexual orientation and gender identity. The American Dream and Promise Act, which would protect up to 4.4 million dreamers. The George Floyd Justice and Policing Act, which would increase accountability for police officers. Legislation to strengthen background checks for purchasing firearms. And of course, the For the People Act, which would save democracy as we know it. But over in the Senate, none of this legislation will pass so long as the filibuster remains in place. Joining us today to talk about our plan to fix all of this. Crooked Media's political director, Shaniqua McClendon. Hey, Shaniqua, welcome. Hi, this is my first time here. I'm like really excited. We're excited to have you. <laughs> uh, would you tell us all about Vote Save America's uh, call tool and our brand new whip count? Yeah, yeah. Um, so if you head over to uh, votesaveamerica.com slash for the people, all one word, um, we have a list of 50, all 50 Senate Democrats. And um, right next to that, we have whatever the latest thing they've said about whether or not they support eliminating the filibuster to pass HR1. And as you scroll down, you'll see some people have gold stars next to their names because they've been very clear about where they stand. Um, but most of them have a phone next to their name because most of them have been what I think is intentionally vague about where they stand. So if there's a phone next to their name, we would love for you to call them and figure out, you know, where they stand on eliminating the filibuster to pass uh, HR1. And, you know, these calls are really important because they'll put pressure on Democratic senators to hopefully do the right thing and eliminate the filibuster to pass HR1. But at least it will push them to get clear on where they stand. So if they actually don't support it, say that and stop just kind of running around and leaving people confused. Um, especially since this is something that has been discussed since the Democratic primary started in 2019. So it's not like 
they didn't know the question was coming or they've been confused about it. Shaniqua, do you ever feel bad about spreading misinformation about the fact that you've been on Pod Save America before? I was really trying to remember when I saw Jordan's note. And now... Do you, huge do you, huge do you, impression it left wait, on you. I remember I was on a live stream. Wait, what? Is that Does that count as the same? Uh-huh. Okay, wait. Well, then what are no. we talking about? Look, I don't know. Jordan Jordan <laughs> not, Waller not, put it I'm in not the sure. chat. Yeah, hard fact uh, check. She, she was the one who corrected. I, Lovett didn't even Lovett didn't even really have the correction handy. It was all Jordan. Oh, now she said she'll find it after she just uh, after she just dropped rolled that I, grenade right into the uh, into the Zoom interview. I feel like you should know it off the top of your head without looking. If if you're just gonna throw that out there. Well, you know what, but Shaniqua, you're here now, which is the most important thing. I am. That's true. I, that was me saying a nice thing. I wasn't trying to be mean about it. I'm happy to be here. I, I won't give you. I won't. I won't pin you down to the exact number, but it does feel like there's not enough gold stars right now. Um, next to all these Senate Democrats, I counted them. There's 16. Oh, oh you, of course, I should have known. You counted them. <laughs> so there's only 16 gold stars. A lot. It's time for people to get off the fence. It's time for people to get off the fence yeah. at this point. I mean, we we kind of you can understand uh, people being intentionally vague for a while because there hasn't been a bill to actually take the stand on. But now that we have 40 bills, over 40 bills piled up that have passed the House, um, it, it's it's getting time. You spent some time working on the Hill, Shaniqua. What was your experience with constituent calls? Like, how effective are they in persuading members of Congress? They're really effective. Um, I will say constituent calls, that's the normally the first thing you do on the Hill in an entry-level job. And it's like terrifying. Um, People are not always nice, but the way it works in most offices is staff assistants and interns, they answer the phones and you literally tally up, I mean, on computer software, but you tally up how constituents are feeling about different pieces of legislation or just issues. And this includes voicemails too. So if you, you know, don't get through to a person and you leave a voicemail, just be sure to leave your zip code so that they know that you're from their state or, or district, because we did not you know, we didn't log in anything that didn't have identification for where you lived. Um, But if an issue is not already in this software that we use to log all of um, those issues, initially, we'll just say, enter it in kind of generically and say, we'll pass that along to the senator. Once you get a certain number of calls, if it's not already kind of a big issue in the news, we'll add it into the system. And so then it's, you know, kind of a bigger deal if it's in the system, but continuing to say, we'll get this to the senator, we'll let them know how you feel. And that really happens. You know, every day we sent a report to senior staff and a senator that had all the issues people called in about listed out and how many people called in favor of it and how many people called in opposition to it. But then when you get more calls, you know, you stop saying, okay, we'll just let the senator know how you feel. And senior staff decides, okay, we need to actually come up with talking points for this. So we're going to have to actually figure out how we feel about it. And one thing I think is worth pointing out is that if we felt strongly about something, there was never any ambiguity. We had talking points ready. If two people called in, they got them. If, you know, 500 people called in, they got them. It was on the issues that we were a little squishy on that it was, we would just say, we're going to pass this back to the Senator. So it's important to call because you keep, as you keep increasing the pressure, the Senator's office and the Senator want to give you um, a response because some of them want to do the right thing. I'd like to say most of them, but (laughs) most of all, everyone is focused on getting reelected. And if they feel like their constituents are really uh, riled up about something, they want to figure out where to be um, and to be on the right side of it. And just adding on to that, oftentimes 
when I was there, people who sat at home watching Fox News all day is who called into our office. And so they were overrepresented in the responses we were getting from constituents. So it's important that we make sure that we're heard so that um, those folks don't get overrepresented and then sway elected officials towards something that just a, a loud vocal minority of people want. That's a really good point. Uh, Tommy, it's only been a few months since Biden took office. Why do you think it's so important to really ramp up the pressure on the Senate and launch this whip count? right now obviously there's a lot mm-hmm. of bills that came over from the house but what what's the urgency right now yeah i mean look th- these things build over time right i mean to to add to what shaniko was just saying barack obama's chief of staff pete rouse who was uh later his white house chief of staff for a time who was called the 101st senator used to personally edit every piece of mail that went to constituents so like senior people really hear about these tallies that are coming in they pay attention but you know like, like legislative sessions they're slow they're cluttered the midterm elections come fast uh, uh, senators and members of Congress are the only adults who inexplicably have recess frequently, right? So you don't have a lot of calendar to work with. You're fighting for time. You're fighting for mind share. And then like look, the reforms we're looking for uh, when it comes to the filibuster, that's the first step to unlocking all the other stuff we want to then do. So like this is, this is very urgent. Yeah. And we have had some experience with this kind of thing before. For those of you who've been listening to Pod Save America, for a long time now, back in what 2017, I believe it was, maybe 2018, we did a um, we did a whip count, love it called uh, called Waffle House. Remember when we were uh, <laughs> there was a there was a budget there uh, going through Congress, and basically Democrats said we're not going to uh, fully fund the government until we get a vote on protecting the Dreamers, and we started drumming up a little bit of a whip count, and I, a lot of Senate Democrats sort of they they jumped off the fence there. Yeah, it um it worked. It was an acute success. Um, it may have played some small role in shutting down the government for about 48 hours, which was over a weekend. Um, it was over a weekend. So, it you know, less the, the hours were less significant. But um, nonetheless, it it um, it was effective because politicians are skittish and you got to make sure they're afraid of the right things and they can be afraid of being called partisan scorched earth warriors who don't care about bringing people together, or they can be afraid of uh, the base (laughs) uh, uh, for not delivering on their promises. And we uh, don't just want to do this because it's not just because we believe it's the right thing to do for the country to pass some of these these bills. There's 500 and some odd days to not just uh, uh, pass progressive legislation that shows people that we've earned their vote, but also to pass H.R. 1 to make sure we protect those votes if we do earn them. So uh, uh, time is uh, ticking on that. And there's one other just uh, look, I'm in charge of corrections today. Um, Shame on you, Tommy, for calling it a recess. It's a homework period. Uh, It's a homework period. (laughs) Homework period. No way. We call it recess. Congressional recess. Yeah, I know, but they don't like that anymore because it sounds like recess, and so they refer to it. As so a they district. went with homework. That's better. It's a okay. district working That's period. They go home. They do work. District at home. working district, period. Yeah. District working period. Homework. It's not called homework. All right. <laughs> Sorry, portrait oh mode. You flubbed your homework. <laughs> Bunch of pedants. Can't even hear me. My my Zoom's breaking up. I don't even know what's getting through. Uh, yeah, leave are you this in. here with us. I'm breaking some, in, but leave hey, this get in. Get some fucking internet. How long have you been doing this? <laughs> Can we get some rural broadband for Lovett, wherever he is, in, uh, in Biden's Build Back Better plan? He's either in super HD portrait oh, mode broken. or you can't see him. Don't cut this. We're leaving <laughs> this in the <laughs> Leave it all in. This is our lives. Am I uh, back? We have, 
You're back. Yeah, you're back now Terrific. for now. We'll see. Maybe we, these Democrats could pass a broadband bill. <laughs> we already made I already made that joke while you were cut out. Uh, all right. We <laughs> We've talked. We've this. talked a lot about Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema's support of the filibuster. Shaniqua, what other Senate Democrats uh, are you keeping an eye on here that have been particularly waffly on this uh, on their support of the filibuster? Um, so three states that really stood out to me because they are all three represented by two Democrats, but the other Democrat in the state has come out in support of eliminating the filibuster for HR one. And so uh, Patrick Leahy in Vermont, um, Bernie Sanders is his counterpart. He has been really vocal about this, but has said, you know, the Senate is where legislation comes to, to cool off. It's the saucer yes. or something like that. So sick of hearing um, that. I know. Um, and, you know, I just think it's um, interesting because he has, you know, Bernie Sanders there who has been, who's vocal about everything um, and really pushing a progressive agenda. And this is part of it. And, has just kind of landed on that. Um, I think out of the three, I'm going to mention he's the one that really needs to be pushed so people can understand where he stands because the Senate is where things come to cool off doesn't answer the question, like, do you want to pass HR1 or not? And then was really interested, and I wouldn't call him, you know, John Ossoff from Georgia. Senator Warnock has said, you know, he does not think the filibuster is worth saving if we can't pass HR1. Uh, Ossoff has said he's open um, to eliminating the filibuster, but I just think that, that is a pretty lukewarm stance for someone who is the 50th senator, as far as I'm concerned. Like, he was the last person to be elected. Um, they got elected together, Warnock and Ossoff, but looking at the vote count and vote share. Um, you're, you're tough. Open, open, to, open to eliminating <laughs> feels pretty good to me. <laughs> well, he should, he should just say it. He should I just think she say it, especially... No, but he should. Sorry. He should just say it because it's like, you know, this isn't just about getting people to be for this. It's like the difference between people who are for this because they have to be and people who are for this because they recognize that it's like the the right thing to do and something to fight for. Yeah. And will Senator Warnock be back in 2023 if he doesn't do this? Would Ossoff have been elected in 2020 if Georgia had the bills that they're working on uh, in place now? Mm -hmm. So if they keep going and these are on the books, you know, he wouldn't have been elected. So I think he kind of owes it to the folks of Georgia uh, and everyone who has helped out to get him elected to do the right thing. And then finally, um, our senator, Senator Feinstein, <laughs> um, she, uh, is, I'd say in between Leahy and Ossoff and said that she doesn't want to end tradition, but the opposition party shouldn't be able to prevent votes on important bills. I, uh, I, I just don't get the obsession with tradition. You know, that goes back to Joe Manchin for me. And I just don't know what he's holding on to. But especially for Feinstein, who represents California, um, I just, that just feels like a not good excuse to me. Um, So yeah, those are the three that I'm really going to be watching to see what they do. Because um, I mean, I would put cinema there, but she's, you know, yeah, doing her thing to annoy people. Um, But yeah, I, I think it's really interesting that you have three Democrats who they're counterparts in the state are other Democrats who have been pretty uh, upfront about how they feel about this. And then you have these three who are, who are not. And if you live in their states, you should call them and get them to be more clear on That's it. Good advice. The two dudes that I'm watching are uh, the, the, the senators from Delaware. You got Chris Coons and Tom Carper. They've both been very lukewarm on this. And they are from a blue state, Joe Biden's home state. And yeah. I think you should call them and tell them if they don't get off the fence, Dan Pfeiffer is going to primary one of them. At <laughs> he least should. He, he needs the, to put together in, the exploratory the committee. He needs to put together the committee just to show that it's there's um some you know there's some bite behind the bark. You know we we got to get Dan in this in this contest. <laughs> the other thing is uh you just rattled off a list 
of senators. And it's even when you, you know, you, obviously Ossoff is an exception, but uh, one other reason we have to move fast is um, not to put too fine a point on it. Like we're one hardened artery away from losing the Senate at any time. That's not wrong. <laughs> Just something to keep in mind. Yeah. Well, and also, yeah, when you talk about Leahy and Feinstein too, those there's like opposition that is due to sort of um, political concern. Like, how's this mm-hmm. going to play in my next race? I know like Maggie Hassan in New Hampshire has a tough race coming up. Yeah. She's been sort of on the fence. But then there's just, I've been in the Senate for a thousand years and this is all I know. And that's like yeah. Feinstein and Leahy. Also, <laughs> if I hear that, one, no one uses a saucer anymore. We're all using those stupid <laughs> fucking paper things around our Starbucks. Two, like if the legislation does any more cooling in the Senate, it right. will just be ice. They don't do anything. They don't pass anything. There's not some issue of like overheated House bills coming over to the floor in the Senate and rapidly getting passed. The Senate doesn't do anything. They raise money and then yeah. they leave. <laughs> yeah, it's like it's like it, it, it's too much legislating these days. We got to slow yeah. this slow this bad boy down. Two, two yeah, reconciliation a- bills every four years. Like great. So uh, just in case you are not sure what to do when you call, what to say, what argument to make, last week we asked you all to send us voice notes explaining what you would say, the argument you would make to Joe Manchin, Kirsten Cinema, or any other Senate Democrat who's still on the fence about abolishing the filibuster. Uh, you really delivered. Uh, here are a couple of our favorites. Let's, uh, let's play the clips. This is Robin, a Wisconsin voter who resides in Greece, and I've written a serenade for your senator which I encourage anyone to use. It goes, Oh, I wish you'd be a filibuster buster. That is what I'd truly like you to be. A filibuster buster could save democracy and everyone would be in love with thee. Hi, Joe. I'm one of your constituents. I appreciate the critical votes you've cast to do things like protect the Affordable Care Act, but there is a version of U.S. history in which you could cast many more critical votes. Reform the filibuster, Joe, and if you do, I will personally organize a group of West Virginian progressives to carry you and Susan Collins to the top of Cooper's Rock so that you can shout both sides until it rings off the Appalachian Hills. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I like the appeal to ego at the end there. That was good. I really like that one. The uh, the the song. I don't. <laughs> that's a, a that is quite a song. Uh, like we it. have what we have one more that came in through email um, uh, and not through voice note that uh, that John Lovett's going to read for us. All right, here it is from a listener named Alec to Mister Manchin. Oh God! <laughs> Come on, Alec. That's sort of, there's a space between, you know, inside of his name to make a little pun. Mm -hmm. There's no argument that hasn't been made to you yet. Ultimately, you just mistake Republicans for people acting in good faith, and that's very silly of you. But anyway, below is something you probably haven't considered about the filibuster. Did you know Philly comes from a Greek word, philia, meaning love? Did you know bust means to bankrupt? The filibuster is literally bankrupting love, loving policy and loving progress. (laughs) I feel like... (laughs) I feel like we're all Sam going, throw the filibuster in the fucking volcano already. And you're like, nah, bro, you'll have to bite my finger off. That was so much cringe in so few words. (laughs) Alec, thank you. Thank you for sending that deeply uncomfortable missive. Uh, Who's Sam? It's Sam Wise Gamgee, uh, (laughs) I believe. Gamgee's from uh, Lord of the Rings. That's a Lord of the Rings reference. 
Okay. Mm -hmm. I think we should take two lessons away from these. One, don't be mean. It's probably probably better not to be mean to them. Two, Mm -hmm. keep it simple and make sort of basic Mm -hmm. direct arguments. That that would be my advice based off our, our experience just now. And I'm also just like, uh, I'm very interested in in with with, with Greece by way of Wisconsin. I'm also yeah, just interested in that cool. path. Yeah. yeah, yeah. No, me. Uh, don't be mean, but uh, dripping condescension and sarcasm, like screaming both sides from the top of a mountain. That I laughed. That <laughs> that works. That works. That's better than just straight mean. Um, all right. Do not forget to call your senators uh, so we can keep updating our whip count. Go to votesaveamerica.com slash for the people. You can find our call tool there. Uh, We'll have scripts for you and you can check out the latest count. Shaniqua, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me for what I still stand behind is my first time. (laughs) I like that. Jordan's I like the confidence. Jordan went silent on this. And just one other quick note. uh, The best way to reach Diane Feinstein is by telegram. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) All right, everyone. We'll talk to you Thursday. Take care. Pod Save America is a Crooked Media production. The executive producer is Michael Martinez. Our senior producer is Flavia Casas. Our associate producers are Jordan Waller, Jazzy Marine, and Olivia Martinez. It's mixed and edited by Andrew Chadwick. Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer. Thanks to Tanya Sominator, Katie Long, Roman Papadimitrio, Caroline Rustin, and Justine Howe for production support. And to our digital team, Elijah Cohn, Nar Malconian, Yale Freed, and Milo Kim, who film and upload these episodes as videos every week. You can start your day off right. When you find a professional on Angie to get your plumbing right first. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that.